Well, you know, part of the whole problem about Trump era, call it that, is how to talk about it. Um, I, I look at it sort of like a pandemic, that whatever you say in the beginning will sound alarmist, but in the end will prove inadequate. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. In the Republican Party of Donald Trump, does three indictments mean you're out? Or has the party morphed into an authoritarian cult that will do whatever its leader says? Stuart Stevens believes that Trump poses an imminent threat to democracy and confesses that his own life's work contributed to the rise of Donald Trump. Stevens was a former top advisor on five Republican presidential campaigns and numerous other GOP campaigns around the country. He has abandoned the Republican Party now and is doing all he can to stop it. He's a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, which is working to defeat Trump in the 2024 election. Stevens grew up in Mississippi, but now makes his home in Stowe. Stevens has a new book due out this fall, The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. This follows his 2020 book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. I began by asking Stuart Stevens what he thought the impact would be of Trump's latest criminal indictment. I've long predicted, I'm not the only one, that the indictments would help Trump in the Republican primary, of which there's a certain crazy logic we can talk about. Um, He's going to be indicted next week in Georgia, which is the most slam dunk of any of these cases. If you haven't gone back and read the transcript of that conversation, this book I just wrote, I did. I thought I sort of knew what they said. When you actually read it, it's one of the more astounding documents. And he has this lawyer there, Cleta Mitchell, who at one point is so frustrated with Trump, she picks up the phone and starts explaining to Raffensburg, no, this is exactly what we mean about stealing these votes. It's classic. Um, So if he doesn't get indicted on that, I can't imagine. It's everything you're taught not to do in a campaign when you first work in campaigns. Um, For the general election, um, we have no idea. you know, what people have to wrap their minds around is that uh, a Democrat, not just Biden, but Biden, has to win by f- the popular vote by four points. So if you see that Biden is three points ahead, uh, he's probably going to lose the Electoral College. Um, so I, you know, in the Lincoln Project, we've been focused on this f- small group of predominantly college-educated Republicans, who were the last to support Trump in 16. They came on after the Comey letter. And usually in campaigns, the last to join are the first to leave, obvious reasons. Um, And enough left that he was able to win these states that Hillary lost. Um, Ultimately, you know, Biden wins by... Seven and a half million votes, but if forty-three thousand votes in the right places had changed, by Trump would still be president. So it's a game of very small numbers. Um, I think 
the only thing that we know now is whatever we think will happen won't happen. And there's so many incalculables out there from the timing of the trial. I'm working on the assumption that Trump will not be convicted before the election. Um, and it'll be sort of a moral test for the country because Trump's basically running, esteem is, so I can pardon myself. And by pardoning myself, I'm pardoning you because you invested in me and we were right, they were wrong. So we never had an election like that. Um, versus those who will be completely repulsed by this. So, I mean, like, in the Romney campaign in 2012, you could always, if you look at polls, you could see that there was this low propensity white voter that would likely only vote if motivated by xenophobia, race, um, some sort of cultural anger. Um, now, you know, Romney would never go there. We never even talked about it. But I would have bet, had you gone there, that the votes that you won, you lost at the upper end with the college educated, that it would have been a net loss. And that was one of the many things that I was wrong about in 16. That the college educated were just fine with Trump. Enough stayed with Trump. You know, no Republican has ever lost college-educated voters. Goldwater lost college-educated, or won college-educated voters. Now, a lot of that is, it's sort of a misleading thing because more college, more white people are college-educated in America than not. So there's other factors in there. Um, Republicans don't win college-educated African-Americans. They lose them overwhelmingly. So, um... I think it'll be a very, 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 very tight election. And I think if Trump wins, it'll be the last election that we can recognize as an election in America. Say more about that. What do you mean? Well, you know, part of the whole problem about Trump era, and call it that, is how to talk about it. Um, I, I look at it sort of like a pandemic, that whatever you say in the beginning will sound alarmist, but in the end will prove inadequate. And it's something that, you know, someone like me, who I, I know all these people, I work with all these people. Jason Miller was my intern, for God's sake. Um, however bad you think they are, they're worse. And it's really difficult um, for majority of people to wrap their minds around this. This whole idea that lingers out there that there's some normal that the Republican Party could resort to. There is no normal. There's nothing that the Republican Party, there's no line that the Republican Party is going to cross that we're verdict. So think about it. What a guy motivated a mob to come into your office and try to kill you, but you still don't vote to convict him. So what's going to happen that makes you want to, well, okay. That was okay, but like now he said this and that's too much. No, if you don't hold a guy accountable for trying to kill you and your colleagues, you're not going to hold him accountable because, you know, he said something crazy about Ukraine. Um, their, their mindset, which 
Trump has done is uh, turn the Republican Party. Well, we can get into turned or revealed. I personally think revealed is better. But Republican Party now is pretty much officially a white grievance party. And there's no greater way to prove the grievance than to be indicted by the deep state. So you have to vote for Trump or you're going to prove that the deep state was right. So, you know, I would encourage everybody to go read or watch Trump's announcement in Waco in April. Um, it, it's another one of these things I kind of thought I knew what he said, but until I really read it, it is a declaration of war against the United States. There's really no other way to put it. It opens not with a pledge of allegiance to the United States, but a pledge of allegiance to the insurrectionists. It opens with the insurrectionists. This hymn they have, the song that they recorded in prison. The January 6th yeah. choir. It is January 6th choir. It is uh, the final battle, as he calls it. It is for retribution. Um, it is no coincidence that it was there on the 30th anniversary of Branch Davidian uh, siege where, you know, right down the road. Why do you, nobody goes to Waco, Texas. It's completely <laughs> deliberate. Um, and, you know, when people, a lot of really smart people who write about authoritarianism, like Ruth ben Giot, um, Jen Mercer, one of the things they always say is, listen to what they say, they tell you what they're going to do. And Trump is doing that. And, you know, when Ron DeSantis says, we're going to slit their throats, mm -hmm. it's, don't laugh. Take it seriously. And, you know, this, this book that I, I wrote that's coming out this fall, it's called Conspiracy to End America, uh, the, the Five Ways uh, My Former Party is Pushing Democracy, uh, democracy into Autocracy. Yes. And... I wrote the book because, you know, as I read more and more about how democracy slide into autocracy, it became apparent there really are five elements that have to be present. Um, you need the support of a major party. They have that, Republicans. You need financiers. God knows they have that. The Peter Thiel's of the world, whatever, they have unlimited money. Um, the largest single political contribution made by an individual in the history of America was $1.6 billion that was just given to Leonard Leo's group that gave us a Federalist Society. And Leonard Leo's group primarily now is focused on changing election laws. And he is the one who famously has been behind, his fingerprints are on Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and the yes. lavish lifestyle and things that they've read. We, uh, we should talk about that because the Federalist Society is a fascinating model for this. It, it is their model and it's fascinating. So um, changing the legal system is one of the, one of the five elements, which is if you change the law so that a Georgia legislature can overturn the popular vote, when they overturn the popular vote, it's perfectly legal. Um, this recent Supreme Court case of, of Moore versus Harper was a victory in that it was 6-3. This is over the independent legislature theory that legislatures could. At the same time, three Supreme Court justices v agreed that 
the entire basis of the American electoral system was wrong and that state legislatures could overturn any federal race. So that, that's not a bad start to start with three. I also zeroed in on those three when I read the news of that decision. I had the same reaction. That means three Supreme Court justices of the United States yes. are fine with overturning popular vote. They believe elections. that that is the correct interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. Um, the fourth is uh, shock troops, uh, which they have. And the fifth is propagandist, which they have this vast network of propaganda. And I think that we look at all of these individually a lot. You know, a lot's written about money and politics, a lot written about how they're trying to change laws. What we don't look enough is how they are part of a larger pattern that the elements are necessary and one of the things you know when a democracy slides into autocracy one of the inevitable factors is those who support democracy can't imagine it happening and those who support the autocracy can't imagine losing and there are a lot of buffoonish people over on that side i mean the lauren boparts the marjorie taylor greens although can argue whether or not she's buffoonish now, second most important member of the House of Representatives, um, Matt Gates. But it is not a buffoonish movement. These are very serious people. They're very patient. So you take the Federalist Society as a model. Federalist Society started in 1984, weekend in Yale, with a very innocuous name of something like, you know, a review of the role of the federal government and the judiciary. Out of that came the Federalist Society, which in this book, I traced the success of it um, and came to be run by this guy, Leonard Leo. And Leonard Leo's major focus now is changing the laws of how we elect people. And ultimately, this is all about race. So those Americans who are 15 years and younger, the majority are non-whites. Odds are overwhelmingly good at 18, they'll be non-whites. So we talk about America becoming a minority-majority country, which it is. But in a way, it already has among those who are 15 and younger. Trump's coalition is 85% white in a country that is 60% white and less so since we've been talking. So the party had one of two choices, either do what it was necessary to appeal to more non-white voters or maximize white voters and attempt to change the rules so that it's more difficult for those who are non-white and at the lower economic spectrum to vote. And that's clearly a path they've gone. Um, and they know it. They know they have a short period of time here. Uh, and they are determined to do this. This is when you look at these you know, plans. The New York Times wrote that great article. What are the plans that they have if Trump gets elected? These radical plans, do away with civil service, do away. You know, there is a reason that conservatives are in love with Viktor Orban in Hungary now. Viktor Orban is their model. And if, if you haven't read Ann Applebaum's Twilight of Democracy, I go around, I pass it out like watchtowers to random strangers. Uh, it's a short book, you know, Anne Applebaum, American journalist who lives in Poland, 
um, married to a former Polish Minister of Defense, um, worked mostly of her career in Europe, England, and, and Europe. She uses a premise of the book, a, a millennial party that they had at their big country house in Poland. That was in 2000, incredibly hopeful time for Europe. And she compares it to 2018, I think, in which half the people hated the other half and how Hungary had fallen into an autocracy and how Poland had these very strong urges to do that. And it's inc incredibly illuminating um, of what could happen here. And, you know, one of the things that, there's a, a fantastic book called uh, How Democracies Die by these two Harvard professors. And I have to point out at this point, Ann Applebaum, Steve Levitsky, um, uh, uh, Jason Stanley, all of these uh, guys have been guests on this show. So I would also encourage uh, uh, listeners to go back to these podcasts because uh, this is a topic that I have yeah. been fascinated with for a long time. And, and I appreciate your raising their work because in order to understand the moment we're in, it's helpful to talk to people who have been studying these movements. This isn't a new playbook. It's actually a very time-tested yep. playbook. Yes. And these guys, Stephen Litsky, and I forget the other guy's name. That, that Jason Stanley wrote How Fascism well, Worked. Levitsky about was How Democracies Die and Ann Applebaum. Yeah. Uh, but these two guys, the, the Harvard professor, Stephen Litsky is one, they, um, they have a new book coming out this fall. And I talked to him about the book. And they were sort of laughing and saying, you know, we worked on this in 2000 when we were writing this book after Trump got elected. In 2017, came out in 2018. Our editor kept saying, like, guys, don't you think this is going a little far? And by the time the book came out, it was like, why were you so optimistic? <laughs> <laughs> you know, wasn't this like a little like rose-colored glasses? And, you know, one of the big things is, of all of these, when democracies go to modern democracies, it's not coups like Chile and Allende. It's not tanks. It's, not, it's done in the courtroom and at the ballot box. And that is exactly the pattern that we're on now. Um, so, but how do you talk about this without sounding alarmist? Um, it, it's, well, first of all, it is alarming, so you want to be alarmist. But how do you talk about it and not sound crazy? Um, it's a constant struggle. What was the moment, Stuart, where you realized that the party to which you dedicated your a professional career it, to helping it win. And you are, I think, the winningest, if not one of the winningest Republican political consultants. You don't have to rub it in, but yes. So what was the moment you realized that this was no longer your grandfather's Republican Party? Um, I can tell you the, the pretty much the exact date, uh, December 15th, 2015, when Trump came out for the Muslim ban. So if the Republican Party was to stand for anything, it's a constitution. A Muslim ban is a religious test. How do you know somebody's a Muslim if you don't ask if they're a Muslim? You know, I mean, think about like Cat Stevens, a guy who you know, became a Muslim. So Cat Stevens like shows up 
JFK and goes, well, actually, I'm a Quaker now. What are you going to do? You're going to ask him, like, trivia questions about William Penn? I mean, it's a religious test. So the party accepted that. And what should have happened is, Reince Priebus, head of the party, he should have said, look, I can't tell people not to vote for Donald Trump. I can't tell Donald Trump not to run. I can just say, as long as I'm chairman of this party, we're not going to support this. That's it. That may mean you don't want me chairman of the party. That's fine. I get that. But the party should have stood up. Now, I know why they didn't. They did it because they didn't think Trump was going to win, and they did it because they were worried about Trump running as independent still. But once you pass that, it just all cascades. And that was the moment where there was no pretending that the party could stand for what it said it could stand for. And, you know, I've said this many times, a lot of people were wrong in 2016. It's really hard to find somebody more wrong than me. I didn't think Trump would win the primary or the general. And, you know, after he won, I had a lot of friends who said, well, Trump hijacked the party. I said, like, I don't see how you can say that intellectually honest view because he's like the most popular person in the Republican Party. So, like, by a lot. By a lot. So, like, that's not how hijackers are. Um, and then I really sort of asked myself, like, how is it that I missed this? How is it that I didn't see this? And in that kind of high school English teacher way, if you can't write it, you don't understand it, I started to write, not really to write a book. Um, and I, you know, I came to the conclusion that the, since World War II, there have been these two strands of the Republican Party. Uh, Eisenhower strand, boring, governing, sane, and a McCarthy strand. Xenophobic, conspiratorial, often racist, non-governing. Now, those of us who worked for, for Bush 43, who believed in this idea of compassionate conservatism, um, we all thought we were the dominant gene. So there's a group of us. I mean, me, Nicole Wallace, Matthew Dowd, who's Mark, Mark McKinnon, who has his television show now, uh, The Circus. Um, Michael Gerson, who's a beautiful writer, recently tragically died, who wrote for the Washington Post, who was Bush's chief speechwriter. Peter Weiner, who's a, another writer. We used to literally all sit in the same room. And in the Bush campaigns. And we knew there was a dark side. We undoubtedly played to the dark side too much. But we assumed, exactly, I assumed that we would emerge dominant if only because the country was changing so much it would be politically expedient. So I want this idea of the dark side has been Nixon pioneers the Southern strategy. Yep. And this is about an overt play to Southern racism, to peel away yep. the conservative so-called Dixiecrats of the Democratic Party. And people need a long memory to know that um, the, the Democrats were very much the party of Jim Crow for many years. Um, Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats, I'm sorry. Um, and so Nixon decides to go there, to go to this kind of uh, heart... Well, so anyway, you give, give your the, version the, the, of this. The, so this there, isn't new. There is that this they've... memo that Pat Buchanan wrote with this other guy, Phillips, which, I mean, it should be mandatory reading for, for every, everyone in America. Um, and in it, Pat Buchanan, who was not a bad writer, 
It's a somewhat humorous. He basically says, look, Richard Nixon has done more for, for black people than any other president. And Nixon had done a lot of stuff, actually, particularly about what Republicans do now. But they're never going to vote for Nixon. And what we have to do is we have to reduce the impact of the black vote. So to do that, we need to split the black vote. We need to confuse the black vote. And they talk about, you know, we, we need to nominate, get the Democrats to nominate a black candidate for vice president who will get defeated and then turn off. And this became the Southern strategy. And what is fascinating when you read this, it is the exact model that the Russians followed in 2015 and 2016 when they attacked the elections. It is as if they studied this and did it. When they attacked the American elections. American elections. Yeah. You know, the guy who's head of the Wagner uh, Committee, who, Wagner Group, Pizorgan, who is under indictment under the United, in the United States for uh, election interference. Um, so that was the tragic turn the party took. Now, in Bush world, I mean, we, we failed at getting African-Americans, right? So 1956, Eisenhower gets 43% of African-American votes. 1964, Goldwater gets seven. 2020, Trump gets eight. So you go up one point every 56 years. It's going to take a while. Uh -huh. So, but at least in Bush world, we admitted it was a failure. Um, Mark Melman, who was chairman of the Republican Party, went to the NAACP in 2005 and gave a speech apologizing for the Southern strategy. Now, does that matter? I think it does. Um, you know, at the root of this is a failure of policy. And when I wrote about this, and it was all a lie. When I was coming up, like in the 80s and 90s, there was, it's excruciatingly embarrassing to even talk about this, but there was this belief among Republicans that the reason that African Americans didn't vote for Republicans is because we just didn't know how to talk to them. That there should be enough cultural conservatism bonds patriotism, entrepreneurship, um, that if they really understood us, they would vote for us. So it spawned this whole phenomenon of African-American consultants being hired by the Republican Party to come down to talk to white campaigns about how to talk to black people. And they would say things like, you need to talk about like meaningful jobs, not just good jobs. And we would nod and do this. And of course, it didn't matter at all. The problem wasn't that African-Americans didn't understand what Republicans were saying. The problem for Republicans was that they did understand. And they, we never did the work necessary on a policy level that why is it that these voters aren't supporting us? And there were half-hearted efforts with Jack Kemp, with you'd have you know, enterprise zones and these things. But it, it never was done. And you know, if, if you're getting 7% of one market and you're getting overwhelming support in the other, you're going to get better at the other. This week in the New York Times, a large font headline read, DeSantis bluntly acknowledges Trump's 2020 defeat. This is a headline on August 7th, 2023, just about three years since an election that Trump lost, 
by an electoral margin that he once called a landslide when it was in his favor. You almost feel like you're Rip Van Winkle waking up going. Look, I mean, <laughs> this is the thing. Um, the idea that a guy is running for president and it's a headline that he knows what every fifth grader knew a week after the election is not a sign, that, not a reason you should vote for this person. Um, there has been a too closely defined definition of election deniers. We have said that Carrie Lake is an election denier in Arizona because she's out there always talking about it. You said Trump is obviously an election denier. But the reality is, unless you are willing to assert that Donald Trump lost a free and fair election, you're an election denier. And that is almost every Republican governor, Phil Scott's an exception here in Vermont. Um, it is most Republican elected officials. It was Ron DeSantis until the other day. Um, they're all election deniers. So, so think about this. 70% or so of the country, of the Republican Party, believes that Joe Biden is an illegal president. That means that there's an illegal occupant in the White House. So the 24 election is not going to be about two parties of different ideologies. It's going to be about one party, the majority of which believes they are trying to restore democracy by deposing this president. That not only gives you the right to do whatever it takes, to some it gives them the obligation. And this is, this is not Donald Trump's fault. This is the Republican Party's fault. I helped elect a lot of these people. I know these people. They're not idiots. They knew Donald Trump lost within, most of them knew that night because they study campaigns a lot because they run for office. And I was texting with a lot of them. They knew he lost. Um, and all they had to do was get their comms shop to put out a statement congratulating the president-elect of the United States. That's a pretty low barrier to defend democracy. So like my dad fought like hundreds of thousands of others, three years in South Pacific, 28 island landings. Compared to that, you just got to get your comm shop to put out a statement, and they couldn't do it. And their excuse was, well, you know, what harm does it do? Well, later when they were running for their life on January 6th, maybe they got a sense of what harm it would do. But they still wouldn't vote to convict Trump. So we really have not ever seen anything like this in American history of a complete collapse of a party. And look, I spent 30 years pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, right? There is only one pro-democracy party in America now. It's the Democratic Party. And nothing else matters. You know, there's a Democrat consultant, famous guy, ran Howard Dean's campaign, Joe Trippi, who's now involved in the Lincoln Project. And Joe and I used to run races against each other. I always hated going against Joe because he's really good, right? We go back and we think about what were we arguing about? Like, should the capital gains tax be 35 or 32 percent? It's like a joke. We, we, we fought campaigns over this? I mean, are you serious? And, you know, to get back to that would be a blessing. But that's not what this is about. And it's not good enough to say, I don't support Donald Trump, I don't support Joe Biden. 
one of those two people is going to be president. If, if you're not voting for Joe Biden, you're not supporting democracy. And I think you should hold that line very, very firmly. So, you know, my former client, I have a couple of former clients who, Asa Hutchinson from Arkansas, former governor, who has been very good on Trump. Chris Christie, who disappointed a lot of us, but is now saying the right things about Trump. But it's not enough to say, I'm not going to support Trump. You have to say, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. And that's the test. So talk about the the state of the Republican primary, because we are in a race. And though Trump is, you know, consuming 98% of the political oxygen, there are actually a number of other men and women running against him. Um, how do you assess the candidates and what it would take to compete effectively against Trump? Well, you know, look, the weird thing about running for president is the world gets very small very fast, right? I've done five of these presidential campaigns. Won some, lost some, but was involved in four out of five winning nomination campaigns, right? So the weird thing is you can get nominated for president with less votes than it takes to win a congressional race, if you really analyze it. So the Iowa caucuses, you can win with 35,000 votes. You can win New Hampshire 54,000, 55, depends on the field. So um, to win, you have to win. That's the thing. You have to, when you sit down, you look at this map, it's not about where I can do well. It's about where you're going to win because you have to win to win. Remember, I mean, you know, you and I are old enough to remember when Mo Udall ran against Carter and Udall kept coming in second. You know, it, 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 that's great, but you got to win. Um, so could DeSantis win Iowa? Yes. There's a guy running his campaign, Jeff Rowe, who ran Cruz's campaign in Iowa. Cruz won Iowa. Trump refused to debate in the last debate before Iowa, which probably cost him the election. Um, in theory, there are enough voters there that you can identify that you can get them to vote for you. Now, the easiest thing in politics is to get repeat customers, to get people who voted for you to vote for you again. Trump has a base now in Iowa. And there was a picture in the New York Times that it, I don't, it had tremendous meaning to some of us. And it was this woman named Susie, Susie Wilds, who is Trump's new campaign manager, standing in front of like a Holiday Inn ballroom where Trump campaign was having a meeting, passing out caucus commitment cards, which means you're going to take this and you're going to write that you're going to commit to show up on caucus night to vote for Donald Trump. That's how you win Iowa. Trump didn't do any of that stuff last time. And that they are involved in that granular level here. Trump is going to run a much better campaign. He has Susie Wilds, and he has a guy named Chris Lacevita. And I know Chris, I mean, say what you will, the guy's a good mechanic. And so he's not going to have these freaks and offcast like he had before. Um, but DeSantis could win Iowa, but then what? Where else is he going to win? I, I, I just think 
there has to be a logic behind every campaign. And what is the logic of DeSantis? Donald Trump, I'll be electable when Donald Trump can't. Well, that's weird because Donald Trump is beating Joe Biden or tied with him. And, you know, as the the old political columnist that you and I would both admire, Jack Germain, had a saying that those who depend on electability seldom are. Because it works until it doesn't work. Because if you run on electability and you lose a race, it's like, well, that's the end of the campaign. So t- say a little bit about Ron DeSantis, not because he poses a current credible threat. You know, I'm uh, mindful of the the Times' latest uh, headline on its poll wasn't just the usual talk of somebody edging out somebody. It was uh, the language was of how Trump is crushing his opponents and yeah. have his nearest opponent is DeSantis, who's behind by 30 points. And DeSantis has more, you know, DeSantis is somewhere in the 19, 20 percent zone, which is more than every single other Republican candidate combined. So this is a very kind of skewed, literally, race. So Yeah, but David, I will say as part of the brain trust involved in George Bush's race, where we took a 65-point lead into New Hampshire primary in 2020 and lost by 19, which <laughs> while outspending the opponent three to one, I mean, you that really against really, John McCain. You really have to work at that. You know, it doesn't <laughs> come easy. It takes a lot of commitment. Um, so, the national points here is it's not a national race. It's a state by state race. The problem with DeSantis is. Why are you going to vote for DeSantis? And he can't decide. And ultimately, they're going to stand on that stage. You have to sign a commitment to be in the debate that you'll support the nominee of the party. So they have a debate in two weeks. Every person on that stage will sign a commitment saying that they would support Donald Trump if he's going to be president of the United States. So how do you say Donald Trump is not qualified to be president of the United States if you had to be on the stage to sign the commitment saying he was president? You would vote for him. So and who's saying you have to sign a commitment? Republican the party. Party is, yes. And will and do we think that Trump, who famously refused to make that Trump commitment is saying in the past, he's not going to debate? Yeah. Uh, Chris Christie is saying he's going to sign it with a wink and a nod, and I'm going to honor it the way that that Donald Trump honored it, which I think is a terrible mistake for Christie. Um, I don't think that you can run a campaign based on telling the truth and get into debate by admitting you're telling a lie. But he's no longer my client. Um, it. So you're saying there is a path for DeSantis, and we we haven't even begun to talk about what that means. This is a guy. Well, DeSantis could get could DeSantis get thirty five thousand votes in Iowa? Yeah. Um, but talk about who DeSantis is and the policies that yeah. he's embracing. Yeah. Look, I, I think that what what happened with Ron DeSantis is there is a model for a big state governor doing well in Republican world. Um, Reagan, Bush, Romney won the nomination. A lot of donors looked at Ron DeSantis and said, this is who this guy is. We're going to raise all this money for him. This is who he is. The problem is Ron DeSantis, all of those candidates were very optimistic candidates. They were expansive. They weren't angry at the world. Uh, Ron DeSantis is a little man running for the biggest job. 
He's a very disturbed guy. You don't say things like, uh, I'd like to uh, toss Fauci across the Potomac, that little elf. And DeSantis is like two and a half inches taller than him, by the way. Um, you don't say, I want to uh, uh, get into Washington so I can cut a workforce that is predominantly veteran strokes, as he did. That's some kind of sick political snuff film he has going off in his head. Um, he is an ex just a very off-putting guy. He's a very odd guy. And he just really can't articulate why he's running. So he keeps trying these different things. First, you know, he gave a speech where he, he you know, famously in four minutes said woke 44 times. Um, he looked like an idiot, right? I mean, Trump attacked him for this woke stuff. I don't know what is woke. Yeah, he got in a fight with the happiness company, Disney. How do you get in a fight with a happiness company and lose? I mean, think about it. Um, and well, this, and not only that, but how does a Republican campaign on attacking a multi-billion-dollar Companies them, that has traditionally supported Republicans. And, and, and Disney canceled a billion dollars expansion that was going to be 20,000 jobs to average over $100,000 per job salary. I mean, are you kidding? What governor does what that? Go I mean, you know, you could call up any governor of America and they would say, look, <laughs> I will agree personally to wash every car for the first 5,000 people you hire. You know, they'll do anything to get this. So he got uh, this fight that he's in with higher education. This is insane. Every, how many families do we know that organize their entire life around trying to get their kids a better education? And so he's going to ban AP studies in African-American, and now they're expanding it to other areas. So what does that mean? That means you're going to test worse. It's just bad education. And... So you're a corporation, you want to expand in Florida, your kids can't go to public school and study AP courses? This is not, not going to happen. Well, and of course the irony is Ron DeSantis is a product of Yale and Harvard and seems intent on ensuring that other Florida students not have the opportunity that he was given. I was interviewing Lori Patton, the president of Middlebury College, recently, and I asked her if students high school students coming out of Florida with the curriculum that they are fashioning there mm -hmm. are going to be prepared for a Middlebury education. And her words were, absolutely not. No way. No way. And it, it's extraordinarily self-defeating. I think it's extraordinarily bad politics. Um, and... I mean, if you look at what Glenn Youngkin did in, in Virginia when he ran against critical race theory, right? So Glenn Youngkin's son goes to Georgetown Prep, which has seminars on Margaret Walker, as they should. You know, Margaret Walker, the African-American novelist, that the critical race theory was supposedly, so, you know, you, you shouldn't be able to teach Margaret Walker courses. He doesn't believe this in a million years himself. He doesn't send his kids to these schools. 
He sends them to spend $60,000 a year to go to Georgetown where they can actually get a good education. So I, I think it, it is, it, look, if I ran the Democratic Party, which, God forbid, but if I did, I would wake up every day trying to get in a culture war because you're winning the culture wars. Who won the Nike versus Donald Trump war? Nike. They made $9 billion off of Colin Kaepernick. Who won the uh, Republican Party versus NASCAR banning Confederate flags? NASCAR. The Republican Party got in a cultural war with NASCAR and lost. Who won the uh, cultural war when they were mad at Walmart for acquiring masks? Walmart seems to be doing okay. I don't know. So all of these things, I think, they are completely out of step. And this, you're going to bet on Disney stock or DeSantis stock. I'm going long on Disney. So you were a, a you're a, a leader and in, in leadership of the Lincoln Project. The how do you characterize the Lincoln Project? Lincoln Project originated as a group of Republican consultants who were attempting to defeat Donald Trump in 2020. So what opening does the Lincoln Project see to exploit here? Yeah, this in is defeating very, Trump, it's very specific. Um, there is a group which famously in 2020, Steve Bannon said, if these guys can get four to six percent of Republicans not to vote for Trump, we're screwed. What we call now the Bannon line. So that's our goal, that four to six percent of Republicans. And we know how to talk to these people because they're the people that we did elections for for years. Um, and that's that's our target. We're not trying to get anybody voted for Trump not to vote for Trump. And it, it, we have a very specific, narrow target in very specific states. And those are the states that, when you look at what the difference was in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, those are the voters that came to, to Biden. Um, and they have to stay with Biden. So the, the danger here, I think, I don't think you're going to have a lot of Biden 20 Trump 24 voters. The question is, how many Biden voters are going to show up? And this is where an organization like No Labels, talking about running a third-party candidate, will guarantee the election of Donald Trump. There's absolutely no question about it. Now, I know a lot of these people. I think there are a lot of well-intentioned people over there. I think it is incredibly dangerous what they're doing. And I think that there are very bad-intentioned people at the head of the organization. Um, and it's a, it, it's a huge threat. Um, I find it incredibly insulting. Part of their whole logic is people aren't going to vote for Joe Biden because they think he's going to die in office and then you'll have uh, Vice President Harris as president. So think about that. Really? That's really what you want to do? You want to say that you, you want to start a third-party organization to stop the first you know, woman of color becoming president? Really? So we're going to vote for Joe Manchin? <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's offensive. And, you know, I'm involved in a group that Dick Gephardt leads, uh, going after, no, trying to bring no labels to their senses. Um, it's a group, it's fascinating for me to be on these calls 
because it's Al Fromm who ran the DLC, um, Tim Worth, you know, former congressman, um, Gary Hart's involved. Um, it, 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 Doug Jones, who was a senator from Alabama. Uh, I told him, I said, like, guys, you know, I feel like I got a backstage pass to some sort of like Democratic <laughs> super band. But let me just pivot for a minute to how should journalists cover Donald Trump? Because Excellent his question. grasp of how to play the media turned out to work. So look, I have real well. strong opinions on this. I think that the problem is um, generations of journalists in America were brought up, not just in America, but in America, with the greatest good is objectivity. So that only works if you have people of somewhat good faith on both sides. So it comes down to the question, how do you tell both sides of a lie? And you can't. And this has been the struggle that journalists have had. And it is a complete refiguring of what your role is and, what the, and how you serve society in the, in the greater good. Um, those of us, in, some of us involved in the Lincoln Project started a pro-democracy platform called Resolute Square, which I hope everybody will go to. I'm going to put a plug in here. Go to resolutesquare.com. Um, and our, our premise is, you know, we're right, they're wrong. And we are right, and they are wrong. I don't want to understand the guy in the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt uh, standing in the Capitol. I don't care. I just want him in jail. I don't want him to determine the future of the United States. And I think that there has been a tremendous, bizarre reluctance for journalism in America to call out Trumpism for racism. And it has spawned this genre of, we're going to a diner in Ohio to talk to voters. It is as if the best journalists in America were assigned to go to strip clubs and try to figure out why men go to strip clubs. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. And Trump is ultimately about race. And we shouldn't be ashamed of saying that. And it doesn't mean, I have this argument all the time, you mean if I vote for Trump, I'm a racist. No, it means there's something more important to you is it worked in having a racist as, as president. Because Trump is a racist. So journalists have to, I think, refute this at every, every time. I think that you have to call Trump a liar. You have to call him a liar to his face. You have to use these words. You can't both sides them. There is no correlation between Donald Trump attempting to overthrow the United States government, Donald Trump, uh, attempting to, you know, Donald Trump stealing classified documents and engaging in espionage, violations of the Espionage Act with Hunter Biden's laptop. There's no equivocation here, right? This is like saying, well, Jeffrey Dahmer and Martha Stewart, they're both in the cooking business. <laughs> True, but I think maybe there's some differences here. All right. Well, I want to end on a note of hope, but I'm not sure what it is. So you tell me something that gives you hope. Well, I'm kind of, you know, I had a going out of sale, business sale with optimism in the Republican Party. <laughs> um, what gives me hope is the fact that um, Joe Biden won because of millennial voters. 
Gen Z voters, I mean. They, without, his strongest group were under 30 voters. If you look at Arizona, where Nut Job Carry Lake lost, Hobbs won by 18,000 votes, 17 and change. You look at the map, the only reason that Carry Lake didn't win is because in the precincts around the University of, of Arizona, Arizona State, all of the universities in Arizona, Hobbs was getting 85% of the vote. And had that been 65, she would have lost. And that's what it's going to take. And I think that the bet that Republicans have made that what the country wants to be is wrong. And the single most effective message in the Lincoln Project we have to reach these voters we're talking about is, is this who you really are? When you look at Marjorie Taylor Greene, is this who you really are? Is that who you want to be? Do you want to, if, if you live in the suburbs and a non-white family moves in next door, do you want to teach your kids to love those, that family or to hate them? And overwhelmingly in America, they'll say we want to love them. And, you know, I grew up in Mississippi. Uh, your average teenager in Mississippi would rather be a black rap star than Robert E. Lee. It is a complete uh, miscalculation on where America wants to go. So that's my hope. Um, and I think it's going to be a very close thing. I can't tell you who is, is going, I can't really tell you about 2028 if we'll have an election in America that will be a, a democratic election. That's your note of hope, Stuart. Hope is that you, you, can, you can affect it. You have to go out, you, you have to view this as the existential crisis it is. And when it's an existential crisis, you do stuff that the importance of what you do changes. So you don't go vote for Jill Stein. You don't go vote for some third party candidate that no labels runs to make a point. It's about saving the country. So if somebody like myself can vote straight up Democrat in all these races, I, I vote for Phil Scott here. Um, I work for Larry Hogan in Maryland. That's what it takes because the stakes are the country. Well, Stuart Stevens, we're going to have you back after your new book comes out to talk more in detail about it. But uh, for now, I want to thank you for uh, joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for asking me. Former Republican operative Stuart Stevens was an advisor to five Republican presidential candidates. He is the author of the forthcoming book, The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.